My name is Gagan. I'm an alcoholic. Grateful to be here and grateful to be sober. I've had a wonderful time today. I enjoyed your assembly meeting today and participating in it and listening to all the wonderful news. I got very excited about your archives committee, and I think I've got a lot of good information that I'm going to be able to take back to Georgia. We've been kind of trying to do that, and we just haven't found those dedicated people like you have here to do all that work. And I just I think that's why I, I got to come this weekend so that I could find out all about the Archives Committee and what they're doing. I'm going to go over there tomorrow and maybe get some things that I can take back to Georgia with me. Uh, did my friend John make it that I met on the plane this morning? He was going to try to come tonight. I guess he didn't. I had a wonderful experience, got on the plane this morning, and realized that I really didn't... I knew I was coming to Little Rock, but I really didn't know where I was coming and who was going to pick me up. And uh, if you live like I do, like most of us alcoholics do, you know, I kind of go from one thing to the next. That's kind of always been the way it's been for me. And I realized this morning that I really didn't know who was going to meet me. Ray said that certainly somebody would be here to meet me, and I didn't know where the function was or anything like that. So I got on the plane, and uh, I got real kind of nervous that last minute, getting nervous, and uh, looked down, and the young uh, man that sat next to me had put the AA way of life in the seat between us. And so we got to talking about AA and the way it is. And uh, as we uh, got close to Little Rock, uh, we decided that it was going to be real interesting to see if we could recognize who was going to be there to meet me. Uh, <laughs> now, the big book tells us that as long as we don't drink, that we appear to be and in, in are like other people. So, uh, you know, there's always uh, been a lot of conversation of what does an alcoholic really look like and that type of thing. So we got off the plane and looked around and just couldn't see anybody. Is Sandra here? Sandra was the one who, uh, there she is. Sandra was the one who was there to meet us. Now, Sandra claims that she was standing there in the front row with this. Now, that's pretty... <laughs> now, that's, that's pretty obvious, but I'm, I'm here to tell you John and I missed it. We missed it. And uh, we missed Sandra, and we went to the baggage and came back, and finally there was uh, a lady propped up uh, on uh, one of the pillars there, and, and John went up and said, are, are you with AA? And Sandra overheard that, and uh, the woman wasn't, but Sandra said, here I am. So uh, <laughs> we finally, we got here, and uh, I, I appreciate it, Sandra, and it, it was a real nice experience. But sometimes, you know, we used to have a saying in the old days, you know, sometimes if you can't smell them, you can't tell them. And uh, so anyway, I'm just real grateful to be with you tonight, and uh, I come from that, that, that old school of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, that never says no, and I kind of never really ended up you know, to be where I am today, and it just kind of, kind of came as a, a commitment to being sober and a commitment to the program and a love for Alcoholics Anonymous and never saying no. And uh, I get kind of nervous at these things, but I learned very early and was around a group of people who let me know right from the very start that this was part of my recovery, and I was to share my experience, strength, and hope with others. So that's why I'm here, and uh, I always love it when it's over with, but I get kind of nervous in the beginning. Uh, but I show up. You know, that's one of the things that I, I learned when I first got sober, that it was real important to show up. So every time I've managed to show up, and I've managed to show up a lot, it all seems to go well. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story, what I was like and what happened to me and what I am like today as a, a result of this marvelous program of Alcoholics Anonymous and a God of my own understanding. And I never knew what I was in store for when I walked through those doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm here to tell you, if I'd have been able to cut the order, I'd have, I'd have come up short. I never had any idea of what was in store for me. Uh, I was the oldest of four children, was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. Came from a family with a lot of alcoholism in it, and nobody ever knew. We just didn't know what it was. We had no information about it. We didn't know what an alcoholic was. We didn't know about the disease. Uh, everybody was just kind of tagged as heavy drinkers. We drank a lot. And if you, if you come for a, from a home where there's a lot of alcoholism, there's just a lot of stuff that goes on all the time. And uh, we never were really quite sure what it is. And uh, when I got to this program began to learn about myself and about the disease and about other, other people, uh, I was able to kind of look back and put a lot of pieces together and understand a lot of things that happened. Uh, my parents were, were very powerful people. Uh, I, they were powerful to me. Uh, my mother in a very kind of a verbal, loud sort of way, and my father in a very silent way. And I was crazy about them. And I learned when I got sober that I was very dependent on them, and it was very important to me how they felt about me. And I always knew where I stood with my mother. She always let me know I was the most important thing that ever happened to her, but never quite sure about my dad. 
And uh, my dad eventually became my drinking partner. And uh, as I got sober in this program, I watched him die of this disease. Two weeks before I had my first birthday in AA, my father died as a direct result of alcoholism. Uh, he was able to see what happened to me as a result of this program and see the change in my life, but it was never to be part of his experience. Uh, I had a, a younger brother at the age of 40 on Christmas Eve died suddenly as a direct result of, of alcoholism and drug abuse. He also attended some meetings with me and saw what happened to me as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was not to be in his experience. I have a younger brother who has just retired from the Air Force and he drinks alcoholically. He's been hospitalized several times. I've had a chance to share with him about this program and he has not chosen that to be his experience either. Uh, my husband uh, is in uh, Al-Anon. Uh, our story is a little bit different than a lot of people's story. He got in Al-Anon when I was five years sober and the chips were pretty down because I was beginning to get well and he wasn't getting any better. So uh, he, finally, uh, he finally got to Al-Anon. He is an active member today and also an Alateen sponsor. And uh, We realized today that we took a lot of sickness into that family and thank God through these programs of recovery we are able to bring wellness into the family and principles and love and, and joy and some things that we never experienced before. We've been married 31 years and that's kind of an unusual thing for an alcoholic woman to get to the program to be married to the same person all those years. So that just lets you know how sick Al was. He stood around all those years while, uh, uh, while alcoholism was taking hold of our family. Uh, I am a believer this is a family disease, and uh, everyone gets sick in it, but thank God we all have a chance to recover. Uh, Al and I have three children. Our oldest daughter is uh, one of those people who is well-balanced. She has inner resources to draw from. She has a program. She's the only one that I know anywhere in my family that lives without a 12-step program. She has her own program. She does very well. She's well-adjusted, and she's a, a lovely person. And her obsession is, is good health, and we don't really understand that, but it's been wonderful to watch. <laughs> and uh, uh, she doesn't like being out of control, and she doesn't smoke, and she exercises and eats well and does all those wonderful things that, that I come here, you know, a lot to try to learn how to do those things. Uh, I have, uh, we have a middle daughter who's been in and out of this program for the last five, six years, and uh, her life has been just a disaster and uh, bears the brunt of this disease. Uh, she has sobered up. She lost her children uh, in a courtroom. Uh, Al and I sat there and watched the children being taken away from her uh, as a result of not, not being capable to take care of her children as a result of uh, being an alcoholic and a drug addict. And she sobered up and got her children back, and she's back out again and her husband has taken out papers once again so we're now just waiting for another court date for him to take the children away from her. Uh, our youngest daughter uh, has just celebrated her first birthday in the program for Narcotics Anonymous and that's been a wonderful experience. Uh, the first part of March and my sobriety date by the way is March the 14th 1976. I really like the way y'all give your sobriety date. We do that in Georgia, but we kind of do it, you know, we kind of work it in. And I love, the way, I love the way you do it right up front. I have a sponsor who's 37 years sober and got sober in Louisiana, and, and that was a, a tradition that they did down there. So uh, I was really, it's really a nice uh, uh, thing to be able to do. So I'm really glad to tell you. I, I contacted AA in May of 75, and uh, it didn't, uh, didn't come and contacted again in January of 76, and I did come, but my sobriety date, as I've just told you, is in March. So um, it took me a while to uh, click in, but boy, when I clicked in, I clicked in, and I love this program, and I love being sober. Um, through the process of inventory and being able to, to kind of find out what I'm all about, uh, which was uh, the first time I was ever able to do that. I've never known how to do that. I'm, I'm so glad the instructions are written in black and white because I even think, you know, without the drink I would not have known how to gear my life toward a purposeful living. And uh, as I'm able to look back, I see a lot of those things that are very characteristic uh, of the alcoholic, the personality traits, uh, terribly dependent on people didn't seem for some reason to have any inner resources to draw from, and I don't know why that is. I just didn't seem to have them. So when you don't have inner resources to draw from, you have to draw from other people. And as I'm able to look back, I always seem to have to, to have that emotional need uh, taken care of from other people, not only emotional needs but physical needs. Just always was looking for somebody to take care of me. And, and for quite a long time, there always seemed to be somebody to take care of me. I, I sort of believe that if you're not able to take responsibility for your life, there's always somebody around who will do that for you. 
And uh, my parents did it for a long time, and then my husband did it for a long time. And then when I got to the program of alcoholics, I learned for the very first time in my life how to take responsibility and take care of myself. Uh, I was very obsessive and compulsive as a child. Uh, I was always into activity. I was a great activity person. And uh, uh, I don't remember being lonely a lot because I was just always so busy doing stuff, I never had much time to think about it. Always fast lane living. Uh, very active in school, did very well. I was a straight-A student. Um, as I look back, I had a musical ability that was far above average, and it allowed me to do a lot of things and, and have a lot of opportunities that other kids didn't have. I came from a family who had a lot of money, so there was a lot of opportunities there afforded me as a kid growing up and a lot of chances. As I'm able to look back, it, it sort of looks like I had the world by the tail at 18. I, I graduated from high school, straight-A student, on three honor societies with several scholarships to go throughout the country, and it just really looked like the picture was pretty good. Um, as I'm able to look back, I, I, I know that there was a selfishness and a self-centered working, a self-centeredness working inside of me that I didn't understand. Uh, in my family, the worst thing he could be was selfish, and I always related that selfishness as not sharing my things with you, my, uh, my food and my clothes and my books and my money and that type of thing. I never understood that inner selfishness that we as alcoholics have. Uh, I heard a lady from Florida say it better than I'd ever heard it, and she said that we alcoholics just sort of look at life as in a mirror, and all we see is just ourselves back, and uh, that's always the way it was for me. It was always my parents and my things and my husband and my kids and I never looked at these other people in my life as having a life of their own and needs and desires. It was always the way they played the, that, uh, the part in my life and, and she continued to say thank God through Alcoholics Anonymous that mirror becomes a window and many of us for the very first time are able to look out on the world as uh, something unto itself rather than just something that's there for our own needs and our own desires. So those things were working in me all the time and I never knew it. Uh, alcohol was not a part of my life uh, in high school. I do remember the first drink I had. I was about 12 years old, and I was sick. It was given to me for medicinal purposes, and uh, I had a terrible stomach ache. My father gave me a straight shot of vodka, and I remember thinking it didn't taste very good, but it seemed like I got well right away. <laughs> and, uh, I was to use alcohol later for that very same reason. Uh, I don't think I ever had, I didn't run with uh, kids in high school who drank, so I just w didn't participate in any of that. I just hadn't found what it could do for me yet. And uh, when I was 18, it was arranged that I was to uh, go to New York and study music at Juilliard. And my talent and the fact that my folks had some money afforded me that opportunity. So at 18 years old, I took off for uh, the big city of New York to study music and to work. And uh, I became, uh, there were several things that were significant at this period of time. Alcohol really came into my life as a regular part of my life at this time. Uh, when I got to New York, I was uh, with an agent. We were going around. I was auditioning for jobs, and I was drinking uh, the whole time. I got very drunk. I got very sick. Fortunately, I, I made it home. I was living with a maiden aunt. I got in the house, got deathly sick. She asked me what happened to me, and I told her I'd eaten something that had not agreed with me. <laughs> So it seems to me as I look back, the need to lie about my drinking seemed to be there from the very beginning. And uh, I lied about my drinking all the time. And I didn't really mean to lie, and I didn't really think about it as lying. It just seemed like a natural process that happened for me when it came to talking about drinking. That was to happen to me twice while I was there under the same set of circumstances. I don't remember really feeling guilty about it or, or thinking that I would never do it again. I just knew that if you drank too much, you got sick, and that's just sort of where it was left at that period of time. Uh, while I was in New York, my father came up to uh, see me. He uh, asked me if I would go back to his hotel room with him, which I did, and he said that he really didn't think that that was the type of life, you know, that I wanted, and that he really thought that what I really ought to do would be to come home with him and go to college and meet a nice young man and, and get married and live happily ever after, and that sounded real good to me at the time, and I just never thought, you know, he wouldn't have anything except my best interest at heart. And uh, I uh, made the decision uh, to go home with him. Uh, this was to become my first blaming board for many problems that were to crop up in my life. Uh, as I'm able to look back, I really don't believe my life ever went very well after this period of time. It had its ups and its downs. But alcohol became a regular part of my life, and it just never seemed to really go very well for me from that time on. But this was my first blaming board. If they just left me alone and left me there, I would have been okay to pursue my career. 
Uh, I came home. My father, in the meantime, had relocated in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So I enrolled in Wake Forest College and uh, uh, immediately fell in with a drinking crowd and a fun crowd. At that time, Wake Forest College wasn't very much fun. That was some 35 years ago, and it was operated under the Baptist State uh, Convention of North Carolina. And uh, uh, we were the class that made the front pages of Life magazine because uh, we danced on campus. And uh, that was a pretty big deal back then. And, of course, now I look at my children and what they're, you know, how they live. And it, it, uh, I really think it's very funny as to the things that we did and what they did and, and uh, the difference between uh, our lifestyles and the peer pressures of that time. Um, I met Al, my husband, uh, in that crowd of drinkers. Uh, I think Al would be probably what the big book tags as a heavy drinker. And uh, so Al and I, uh, drinking became a regular part of our life. We began to date. And uh, uh, my grades began to go down, and things just didn't seem to be going very well for me. Um, I'd always thought the answer to living was being a good person. I had a real in-depth uh, dealings with my people-pleasing mechanisms a couple years ago, and and really did come to the conclusion that everything that I had ever done in my life had been based on some kind of outside reward somewhere from somebody, either a pat on the back or someone to let me know that I was special or that I could do something or that I was just important. Um, and, and I always thought being a good person was the answer. And uh, uh, it just seemed like when I look back over my life, the gooder I got, the worse my life seemed to get. And I, I'd spent a lifetime of doing good deeds all the way down the line. And I... I never understood until I got in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that that was not the answer. The answer was to become a well, purposeful person. Uh, I met Al and we began to date and I became pregnant and this became a very traumatic experience for me. And of course now the good girl chain is beginning to get a little chink in it. And uh, the, uh, the situation was devastating to my parents. This was, you know, 30 years ago, and the options left to people, there were not very many of them. There weren't many choices open, and, of course, as usual, my parents took over, and the, the marriage was arranged. And, you know, it never, I ne it never dawned on me until I was five years sober in this program that that set of circumstances might have messed Al's life up a little bit. Uh, he was in his last year of law school, and, you know, we yanked him out of law school, and uh, Al and I were married, and they hustled us off to northern Florida so no one would know what the situation was was because that's the way they did things back 30 years ago and and Al and I began our life together uh, the marriage was a disaster from the very beginning um, I had been told you know that marriages under those circumstances were generally not successful and uh, if you have the type of personality that I have that's kind of the wrong thing to say to someone so uh, that became my second blaming board and that became my obsession that became my obsession until I got sober in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous to make that marriage work and uh, it took everything I had. Uh, the marriage was a disaster. Divorce was never an option. Leaving was never an option. I just lived all those years, about 25 of them, getting up every morning thinking maybe it would change and maybe I could do something to change it. Uh, I thought that the reason that the marriage was not good was my fault. I thought because of the set of circumstances and having been told that they didn't work out. And uh, I set out the obsession almost killed me and almost killed everybody else involved also, including Al. Uh, today, thank God, through this program, we are able to practice a few principles and give each other some space and some freedom, which is something that neither one of us knew anything about at the time. Uh, drinking was a uh, pretty much a regular part of our life. It was not daily at that time. Um, as I'm able to look back on my drinking patterns, uh, two things seem to be real prominent for me, uh, and it just seemed like I never just had a drink. It seemed like every time I drank, I drank a lot. And it always seemed like I had an enormous capacity to hold a lot of alcohol for a long time. Of course, this was to go <clears throat> as the alcoholism progressed. But it seemed like in those early years, I just had an enormous capacity to drink an awful lot of alcohol. I don't remember a lot of problems on the outside as a result of drinking. But there were a lot of things that were beginning to happen for me in the inside. The fact that this marriage had been such a disaster began to really eat at me. And I just became very dissatisfied and very unhappy and very obsessed and just in, in a lot of pain. And uh, I tried to find some things to uh, make me feel better, as we all do. And uh, at this point, drinking was not a, a, a daily thing, but I tried all those things that we tried. I, I always had a weight problem so I could lose a little bit of weight, and I always tried to wear my hair a little bit different and get some new clothes. And, and that type of trying to make myself feel better. And the thing about it is that it will work for a while, and then, of course, once again, you're left with yourself. 
and to deal with all those things inside. And I didn't know that was what was wrong. I didn't know that there were things going on inside of me that, that I, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I tried a couple churches. Uh, my, my church experience up until this time, as a kid growing up, I did not come from a home where parents went to church all the time, but I went to church. A lot of our social functions were based around the church. And I can remember my church experience was a lot like my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous when I first got here, as I just kind of sat around and listened to people talk and just really didn't understand what they were talking about. And uh, I, had, I suspected there was something there, and it seemed to me that people could take something out of those rooms and make them work in their life, but, but somehow it just never seemed to work for me. And I, I used to get kind of angry, and I would go back and I would try it, thinking that maybe this time it might work for me. But it just, uh, you know, I'm one of those people that describes in the big book that I just always kind of wanted something for nothing. I just never seemed to, to know that I needed to go out and do something and do some work and work at something. And, of course, another part of my personality is if I would try something, if it didn't work in 24, 48 hours, then I was always looking for something else because I thought that was enough time to get something to start to work. And Alcoholics Anonymous is the only thing I've ever been able to stick with for any length of time, and it has worked beautifully in my life. Of course, I know, too, that none of these other things that I ever tried had a first step. And uh, when I finally got to Alcoholics Anonymous, that seemed to be the thing that I had to do was set the drink down before anything ever would work for me again. Um, Al had an opportunity to take a job, which meant he'd been traveling, and a lot of things were set into motion for me uh, during this period of time, too. I had a, had a terrible fear as a kid staying alone, and I really I had no experience or anything to base that on. I just had a terrible fear of being alone, and I couldn't babysit and do a lot of those things that the other young girls did. Well, this job meant that Al would be traveling, and uh, I was once again left alone, and I was terrified. Uh, I, he reinforced the, the locks on the doors for me and, and the windows, and uh, I began to sleep with knives and guns and uh, billy clubs and all kinds of strange instruments in case uh, I should uh, become attacked in the middle of the night, uh, up to the point of even having to go and sleep with the children. By then we had three small children and just looking for some form of security and some form to make me feel like I was going to be okay. I also was forced to get a driver's license at this time. I was 30 years old, and I had never gotten a driver's license. Uh, part of that sick dependency of uh, expecting other people to do for me all the time. And I was forced to get a driver's license uh, uh, because uh, Al would be traveling for two and three weeks at a time and, and, and out of the country, so it became necessary for me to get a driver's license. During this period of time, <clears throat> because uh, my relationship with Al was so bad, uh, I believe that, that I am a, a very dependent person until I finally got to Alcoholics Anonymous and that dependency was placed in a constructive and, and a good way for me, and that is on AA as a whole and a higher power. That dependency had to go somewhere, and when uh, Al was not willing to accept that, it went right back to my mother and father, and I, I became what I guess you would call a mom and daddy's girl, and uh, my relationship with my mother began to get very sick at this time. My father had lost all of his money, and uh, she was uh, thrown into a lifestyle that she was not used to, and it was very painful for her. And, and my living situation had gotten very painful, and I think the attraction became that both of us needed each other to tell each other that we were special and important, and that was very, that's what happened in the relationship, and I was not to learn how sick that was until I got sober in this program. So our relationship began to get very, very close and very dependent on each other. And uh, my mother came up and taught me how to drive the car, but I was absolutely terrified of the automobile. And I never drove over 20 miles an hour, and I never drove except when the sun was shining and uh, when it was high noon. And uh, my children are absolutely de delighted. They really feel that a fringe benefit of, of their mother getting sober is she finally got up to the speed limit. So uh, now, uh, having been sober a while, I uh, am like most other alcoholics I know with a change of personality behind the wheel of a car and the road becomes mine and you are in my way and that's sort of a, a real uh, sort of a, a, a semi-nice thing that's happened to me since I've been sober. So uh, I did learn how to drive a car and another very significant thing happened to me at that time is uh, I began to drink daily. Uh, I began to find that uh, the alcohol, and I began to use the alcohol to ease that pain of living that was going on inside of me. Uh, I became a daily drinker. Um, I remember standing in the kitchen uh, thinking that it just made me feel better, and I just knew that it was going to become a regular part of my life at that period of time. Um, 
I don't remember uh, a lot of drunken drinking to begin with. There was just a lot of drinking and a lot of drinking into the small hours of the night, and I had a capacity to hold it, but it did begin to ease the pain for me that was happening to me. Um, the situation that Al got into is the job that he had taken in traveling uh, ended up uh, not being particularly reputable, and uh, all kinds of uh, real legitimate fears began to come into my life. Uh, bank accounts began to get attached, and uh, cars began to be removed from the driveway, and uh, uh, furniture was removed, and lawsuits happened, and all kinds of legitimate fears. So now I was not only faced with the unknown fears that we as alcoholics have, but I was also had a lot of legitimate fears going on, and I began to isolate, and I began to drink very heavily. Um, I'm a housewife, closet drunk, and a lot of people poke fun at us from the podium because they say that we're not real interesting and we don't have a lot of report, and that's pretty true. There's just not a lot of real exciting things that happen to us, although I can assure you that we do die one day at a time uh, in this alcoholism, and uh, I'm also very grateful because I was told in the very beginning that Alcoholics Anonymous affords the uninteresting and the dull an opportunity to get sober, too, so I'm very grateful for that. And, uh, and we do go on to become very useful members of Alcoholics Anonymous. But uh, when I drank out, I drank with my husband. And when I drank at home, I went to my bedroom and drank by myself. And uh, the disease took its hold, and I began to go down very fast. Uh, we moved to Baltimore, and the curtains began to really close in on me. And this is where I began to do all those things that alcoholics do, water down the booze and, and uh, load my drinks and hide my, my bottles and buy liquor by the half pint and this type of thing. And I, I got into all sorts of, of uh, uh, alcoholic patterns with that type of thing. Uh, the morning finally came when I could not get up and get the children off to work. Up until this time, I'd been able to get away with, with pretty much uh, drinking into the wee small hours of the morning. But the morning finally came and they couldn't wake me up and they thought I was dead. And they went and got the neighbors and had the neighbors come in. And the neighbors assured them that I was not dead and helped them get off to school. And I came to about noon absolutely horrified. And this is the first conscientious uh, uh, thing that I remember uh, knowing that something had gone wrong as a result of drinking at this time. Now, I knew I drank a lot, and I probably drank too much, but this was as far as my knowledge about that went. Uh, I went to school and pulled all three of them out and told them I was sorry and that it would never happen again. Well, I guess it was okay for a while, but then that became a pattern and drinking into the wee small hours uh, of the morning and I just never got up with the children. And they had to learn to fend for themselves as children of alcoholics have to learn to fend for themselves. Um, I got a call one Thanksgiving morning that my mother had died suddenly and my world completely fell apart. Uh, she had become my higher power, she had become my main reason for living, and uh, she was gone. And I felt like I was thrown on the world without anything at all. And uh, uh, my life really fell apart at this time. Uh, I began to drink very heavily. I thought for a long time that this is where I crossed the line into alcoholic drinking, but of course I was there long before this situation happened. This was to become my final blaming board. Uh, I heard a man from the podium say, and, and I just love it because it certainly is, was true in my case, that there were certain situations when our drinking really took on purpose. And uh, this was the situation for me when my, my drinking really took on purpose. And uh, I began on a series of things. I went to the library and checked out all the books I could find on ways that you reach people who have passed away and passed on, as they say in the psychic world. And I read everything I could get my hands on, and I began a process of trying to reach her feeling that if I could just get a hold of her and just talk to her that I would be okay. Uh, I had a box of letters uh, that I'd had that she had written me when I was in New York, and this was in 1956, and she passed away in 1973, so I'd had those letters for a long time, but they were as you would suspect, suspect they were. They were full of how much she loved me and cared about me and how wonderful she thought I was and how successful she wanted me to be. And I had a couple other letters in there from my husband and all my high school merit awards. And my life began to revolve in that little box of letters. And my pattern would be that I would drink during the daytime and uh, uh, nap in the afternoon, be semi-okay when the kids would come home, take care of whatever needs I could for them, get them fed, get them in bed. And in the evening time, the process would start of uh, reading the letters and crying and, and drinking and trying to reach her and that type of thing. My father uh, took care of his affairs in Florida and came to live with me, and he was to become my drinking partner. 
and and his pattern was pretty much the same as mine and I don't know why it seems to me that one of the hardest things that uh, I've had to do in sobriety is is really differentiate that true from the false and that's been a very hard thing for me to do even in sobriety to get that fantasy out of the way see things for the way they really are I'm able through this program to look back and, and see that things were not really the way I thought they were and, and understand some of what happened. Anyway, my dad and I would sort of sit around all day long and talk about how wonderful the family were and how wonderful, how much we loved each other, that same process, and then it would just go on and on for me and into the wee small hours and reading the letters and trying to reach her. Uh, some things began to happen to me at this time physically. Uh, uh, Harlan spoke about my hair this morning. Um, it all fell out and I didn't have any hair and I began to get sores all over my body and uh, I began to develop swellings in my hands and my feet and in my throat which was to lead me to a series of doctors and hospitals to try to find out what was wrong with me and what I could do. Uh, I visited seven doctors and uh, uh, one of them questioned me about my drinking, but as I told you before, somehow the necessity to lie about that was always present, so I lied to him about it and just told him I drank a few drinks every once in a while. And uh, they all got together and, and decided what was happening to me was that I was having a nervous breakdown. And uh, uh, one of the doctors said to me, Al and I were in there, and they were, they were telling us what the results of what they felt was wrong and what was going on. And one of the doctors looked at me and he said, uh, Gay, you're just going to have to change. You're just going to have to change the way you think and the way you feel and the way you act and the way you react if you're going to survive in that world out there and if you're going to get yourself back on your feet again. And I, I said to him, well, well, how do I do that? And he said, well, I don't know. He said, uh, but you're just going to have to change the way you are. <laughs> and the thing that I love so much is when I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, that's the exact same thing that you told me, that I was going to have to change. The person I drank, the person I was drank, the person I was will continue to drink unless that change takes place. And I must change the way I think and the way I feel and the way I act and the way I react. And when I asked you how I was going to do that, you told me we have 12 steps of recovery. They're going to help you bring about that change and bring about that spiritual awakening so that you can live with some sort of peace and harmony within yourself and allow yourself to live in that outside world. Uh, and not only that, but you gave me a tag, and you said, then you told me I, if I did it, if I did what I was supposed to do, that I also could be happy, joyous, and free in the process. And that certainly has been my experience. Up until this point, and all these things going wrong, and this terrible gnawing and pain inside my gut, I had an opportunity to go to Omaha, Nebraska, once again, and stay with the gal that had taught me piano all those years to attend a funeral and uh, her husband was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't know when I first heard about AA or anything like that, but Jack had been a drinking friend of my father's, and uh, when I got to Omaha, he had been two years sober in the program. Now, he did not tell me his story. He knew immediately I was in trouble when I got off the plane. I'm sure he probably smelled me. It was 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'd been drinking from the time that I had left uh, Baltimore. Um, we went to the house. He did not tell me his story. His wife told me his story. And I can remember sitting at the table thinking how marvelous it was that someone would be able to pull themselves up and, you know, put their lives back together, never having any idea what my experience was going to be and what the seeds were being planted for me at that time. There are two things that, in looking back, I'm able to put together about that trip. The first being I was having a drink at the, at the table during breakfast about 9 o'clock in the morning, which I did not think was particularly unusual because my family always drank in the morning and that was just not unusual. And uh, he passed by me and put his hand on my shoulder and said, there are no answers for us in that anymore. And I don't remember thinking that that was an astounding statement at that time. The other thing that happened is when he took me to the airport, he insisted on holding my hand from the parking lot into the airport, down the ramp to the plane, he held my hand. And I was extremely uncomfortable. And today I understand what that was all about, that, that powerful thing that happens when we touch each other and we give each other our energies and our experience, and that's what he was doing to me that time. And I got, I got back home, and for some strange reason, in a couple of months, I made that first call to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, when they came on the phone in the intergroup in Baltimore, Maryland and asked me what my name was, I, I hung up the phone. So consequently, I, I didn't get any help.
myself and I was to drink in the same method that I told you about for the next seven months to the day when I made my second call to Alcoholics Anonymous. We had moved to Baltimore and I thought things were going to get better and I, I had all those those thoughts that we all have, I'll get some new friends and, and I'll get, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get a new job and, and, and things will be better. But when you're involved in the disease of alcoholism, things never get better, they get worse. And that was my experience and I made my second call to Alcoholics Anonymous in January of 1976. This time, uh, when they asked me my name, I gave them my name and my telephone number, and uh, they called me back in about 15 minutes, and I was too sick to come to the phone. So uh, one of the, the children took the call and asked if they could please call me back in the morning, and they did, and I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the thing that led up to that, that is, I think, is exactly the way it's described in that first step in our 12 and 12, where it says that there is just no bankruptcy like that, and that's what had happened to me that night. I'd sat on the edge of the bed with a loaded gun getting ready to blow my brains out because life had become so painful at this point that death would have been a relief. And uh, I put the gun down, went into the bathroom, and, and caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror as I hear so many people share in this program. And the words that came out of my mouth were, Oh God, what am I going to do? And I went to the phone and called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think that that was my act of providence that it talks about in that first step that intervention of God, that moment of truth, that thing that has to happen for all of us happened for me that night. And uh, I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I am not one of those people who walked through the doors and felt that I was at home and uh, felt all the love and the joy and the laughter that I know in these rooms uh, that I know today is present. I was just so sick and so scared and I just did not know why I was there. I did not know what was happening. And the process for the next three months began for me to go to some meetings, to drink again, to go to some meetings, and to drink again. And uh, Al and I were to take a, a trip to Baltimore and I was once again committed. I don't know if you have the chip system here, but I had picked up another white chip, uh, which is a sign of surrender, had made the commitment once again to try to not drink. And uh, we took the trip to Baltimore, and I said to Al in the car, I hope that, you know, he didn't mind if I didn't drink, and he assured me that he would not mind if I didn't drink. And uh, I got up there, and we're with some drinking people, and of course, uh, you know, within an hour, I had taken the drink, and it was a very short time because I was in, in, in really in the depths of the progression of alcoholism. I was drunk, and uh, I told them all I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. They had done wonderful things for me. And uh, I'm really grateful that I don't carry that kind of a message about AA today, uh, not only personally, but uh, otherwise. And uh, that gal that I went up to see has just celebrated her 10th program, in, or her 10th uh, anniversary in this program. So I was able at a later date to carry a much better message to her than I carried that night. And that's been a wonderful thing to be sober with someone that I drank with. And we have shared each other's birthdays and anniversaries and shared each other's conventions and it's been a wonderful experience. But I came home and I think for the first time I was really frightened. And I think I realized really for the first time that I did not have any control over this thing. And I realized for the first time the things and the words that I had been hearing in these meetings were true for me too. And I think I came home a little bit more open, a little bit more willing, a little bit more honest. and. Uh, uh, I came back and, and, and picked up uh, a white chip. I was to drink one other time after that on the, uh, the, the evening of the 14th of March, and I didn't know it was going to be my last drink. And uh, thank God that that was the last drink that I have had. And uh, someone uh, told me about a group called Clarkston, and Clarkston is my home group, and I believe it's the best group in the world, as I heard several people talk about up here. And uh, it was a step group. and. Uh, they talked about the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous there, and uh, someone suggested that maybe I should go there, that I might enjoy it. And uh, I went there, and I began to hear about the steps, and I began to hear about the traditions, and it was a wonderful group, and it was very basic, and it was total AA. And uh, something happened to me, and the process began for me, and I got turned on to this program. And I have not lost that enthusiasm or that feeling or that knowing that whatever I needed for me were in these rooms from that time on. And I began to go home at night and play those meetings over again and just get so excited. And as I began to get involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, a lot of things began to happen to a lot of people I loved. And it was brought home to me over and over and over again that the only thing that AA ever promised me was that if I did what I was to do, 
If I cleaned house, trusted God, and helped another alcoholic, and worked these steps, that wonderful things would come about for me. And that was true. But it did not promise me anything other than I would have a new attitude and outlook on life, which has allowed me to get through those painful situations that happen to all of us in sobriety. Uh, two weeks before my first birthday, I told you that my father, he had decided uh, he was an alcoholic, and of course I had watched him, left many a night and went to meetings crying, leaving him home drunk with my children. And uh, I learned, therefore, but for the grace of God, very quick in this program. And uh, uh, he decided I wasn't any fun to live with anymore. And uh, he uh, decided he was going to go to Florida. So he left to Florida. He left and went to Florida and went on a binge and got very ill. Ended up in the hospital, and I went down there. And we were able to talk a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous and what it did and what it was all about. And uh, I really thought I was going to have an opportunity to take him to a meeting, but that was not to be in the experience. And uh, he passed away in that hospital, and I came home, and I was angry, and I was confused. And I didn't understand why I had been given this wonderful gift of sobriety, and it had not been his experience. And uh, the people in AA taught me very lovingly that that was really none of my business that my business's hand was my sobriety and what I needed to do. And uh, they walked me through that period of time and held my hand. And uh, today I am at, at such comfort with that. And, and uh, I understand the process and, and everything is uh, in order. Uh, it was decided very early after that time that it became necessary to burn that box of letters that I had from my mother. Now, I had gotten better at this, but I was still kind of messing around with that a little bit. And uh, my sponsor heavily urged me that that would not be uh, real good for me to go forward in my sobriety still doing that kind of stuff. So uh, she helped me bring that box of letters, and we got rid of that. And uh, she, she made me understand that my relationship with my mother was not in that box of letters. And uh, uh, I am at such peace. This program gives us such wonderful instruments of forgiveness and love and understanding. And, and one of the greatest freedoms of, of knowing that everyone does really do the best they can. And uh, uh, that was such a freedom for me. So I am at such peace with that. Uh, when I was a year and a half sober, uh, my daughter, Lori, that I told you about, who's just getting ready to once again have her children taken away from her, uh, we found out she was very heavily involved in drugs and alcohol. And uh, this was really kind of a really sad situation for us because the children had never been a blaming board. There had been never any problems with the children. Now all of a sudden there was a major one. And uh, she became a runaway, and for the greatest part of two years we never knew where she was or whether she was dead or alive. And uh, this really will force you to work a program to survive. And uh, I've had, uh, I had many people tell me that, that, that this would really make my program stronger, and I think it has. Not only that, I have learned through my experiences with the sadnesses in my family that it has opened so many doors to share with other people. And it is so true that those sadnesses and those things, those liabilities that we feel that have happened to us in our life have been those wonderful things that have opened the door with sharing and to help others. And when I was able finally to realize that, that, that she was not a reflection of me, it allowed me to share very openly in the situation and opened many doors and many sharings of, of, with a lot of people on situations with their children. Um, it was just a very, very painful situation, and of course she still is not sober today. But I really believe, as it says in that first step, that what's the nature of the malady of this disease? is planted in the mind of an alcoholic by another alcoholic, he is never the same. And I believe as she lives, she will be back, and uh, that gives me a lot of hope. Um, we had that experience with her shortly after that. Our youngest daughter, uh, Allison, at 14, ran off and got married, and didn't, we didn't know where she was. Now we had two children, Al and I both great respecters of education, two, two daughters, high school dropouts, and that was a tough thing to deal with. And uh, uh, I began my work in service, and I, I'm here to tell you service has been a godsend for me. The, uh, uh, we, had, we took out orders uh, for the middle daughter to be picked up and committed to treatment. Uh, and the day after that happened, I was at my group, and they'd asked me to read how it works, and I cried through the whole thing. And uh, they talked me into staying for the business meeting afterwards, and uh, somebody nominated me to be the GSR of my group. And um, I just told them I was real sorry. I had a lot of personal problems, and that just wouldn't be possible for me to serve. And uh, they let me know very quickly that that is when you really 
get committed and dig into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is where it gives you your, your opportunity to put those wonderful energies that we as alcoholics have and so that I didn't have to sit and feel sorry for myself and wallow in this problem that was going on. And that's been pretty much my experience in the service structure. It seems like every time something happened to me personally, God gave me another opportunity to share in this program and to serve in this program. And I'm just, I'm just real grateful for that. Um, I, I just I began getting very active and I just loved it and it was just a wonderful outlet for me and I love the service structure and I love the people of Alcoholics Anonymous and even though I had a lot of sad things going on in my life I had this wonderful other thing on the other side of the spectrum that was happening to me. Uh, at five years sober I still having a lot of problems with Al. Al was doing as now and a lot of things that we hear that alcoholics do and uh, it was a real interesting experience and uh, it was a uh, I had a lot of sharing with uh, uh, sponsors and uh, made the decision by right of being sober that I was not going to choose to live like that anymore. So uh, I uh, went to see a lawyer and sued Al for divorce at five years of sobriety. Uh, the day before Al was to sign the papers, he got very sick and ended up in the hospital. And uh, I went over there, and I don't know what it is about us, uh, but I just, I never had a, a good relationship with Al. I just could not seem to express myself well, except when he was laying helpless in intensive care. And, uh, I went in and for the first time in all those years was able to express myself to him after the doctor told me that he didn't need any stress and strain and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> told him that I, I really didn't appreciate him being sick and, and uh, I, I would just appreciate if he would hurry up and get well and get out of there and get his act together so we could just proceed with our lives. And By now I had a job. My sponsor had urged me uh, to take responsibility for my life and I had begun to do a few things for myself uh, at this period of time. Uh, Al came out of the hospital and never went back to that job. By now we had the FBI on our tails and the Internal Revenue was a regular phone caller and knocker on the front door. So we were in a lot of trouble at this time. And uh, uh, Al went into Al-Anon and they advised him to leave me alone and to get his act together. And that's what he began to do. And uh, I told him I would stay until the insurance paid off his medical claim. And for some reason or other, I don't know why I didn't know it would have done it anyway, but I didn't know that at the time. And um, uh, it took 10 months for that insurance claim to be paid off. And uh, of course, in the process, we began to put our lives back together again. And uh, I'm a firm believer on that third step. You know, if you've taken that third step and turned your life and will over the care of God as you understand him, if you make a decision that is not based on what is good for you, it will be reversed. And a series of situations, uh, such as I've told you about, began to happen. And we, for the very first time, were able to start putting a life together and uh, learning about respecting each other and giving each other space. And, and it, has been, it has been a wonderful experience. And I'm really grateful that I have had the opportunity to be one of those people who have been able to put that re a relationship back together through the principles of this program. Um, I had the opportunity to have a wonderful job and uh, uh, I had that job for 10 years and I have just recently resigned and stayed home because I'm going to go back and do something with my music. I've used that music for a blaming board for years and now the time is up on that too and I'm going to be able to do something about it and I'm really excited about that. Um, I, I think one of the things that I really want to share tonight is I, I feel so grateful to be one of those people who have had the opportunity to be involved in the total program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, you've heard me talk, talk about my recovery, and I am a believer that there is a lot more to this program than recovery. We have to have the recovery, and Bill tells us that. But there's two other sides of this program, unity and service. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be involved with a group who talked about traditions and who had a tradition meeting. So I began to learn about the traditions very early. And I never will forget, and it was read this morning, Harlan read it this morning, when I, heard, when I saw and heard that one line in that first tradition where it says, if AA does not live, most of us will surely die. And I knew from the time that I read that that I had a responsibility to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to find out what it was all about and why those traditions were there so that I would never hurt this wonderful fellowship that had saved my life. And I really believe that people don't intentionally hurt Alcoholics Anonymous. I think they do it because they don't know any better. 
And if we all had that opportunity to study the traditions and learn about that, I don't think there would be a lot of things that go on that go on today. And I think it's very important for the day and times in which we live with what's going on in the treatment centers and in the courtrooms and things like that, that we be very aware of who we are and what we are and what message that we do carry. And that's part of, that's part of my commitment to this program of Alcoholics Anonymous and, of course, to the service structure, which I have been so grateful for and so grateful to be a part of, and the wonderful opportunity to go to New York and represent my area and share with, with, uh, with delegates all over. And where's Robert tonight? I thought, yeah. <laughs> That's like missing the sign, Robert. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm, real, I'm, I'm really anxious to be with Robert up there in this April. And I want to share uh, a little story that happened to me up, up there because uh, of Robert sharing with his switchblade this morning. And... Uh, uh, of course, we were, we were all forewarned about being in New York City and what goes on there and how to carry our purses and to put our jewelry inside of our sweaters and all that kind of stuff. So I was up there in, in uh, New York in January, had a wonderful opportunity to go up there and be part of uh, some committee work up there. And they had given me the warning again about how to carry my purse and uh, where to put my jewelry and all that stuff. So I'd gone with a couple of the trustees over to St. Patrick's. Uh, I'm not Catholic, but I'd love to go to St. Patrick's and just look at the wonderful work there and everything. And so I got to St. Patrick's, and I, I, w I did not sit with the guys because they were really going to Mass, and I just wanted to kind of sit back and kind of look at everything. And I was sitting in, in, uh, in the pew, and all of a sudden this wonderful elderly gentleman came up and sat next to me, and about halfway through the service he held my hand. And uh, uh, it, it was such a loving, wonderful thing. I mean, out of the heart of New York City. and. And uh, when the service was over, uh, he just looked over and he said, God, go with you. And uh, during the service, uh, uh, the priest said a couple things and, and about how you greet everybody. And everybody turned and said, we love you so much, you know, welcome and so on. So I don't think you'll need your switchblade. I think we, we, we members of Alcoholics Anonymous don't attract that kind of stuff once we get sober and begin to live the principles of this program. And that has been my experience, and I'm looking forward to being in New York. And I have loved being with you, with you this uh, weekend. And uh, I want to close with something that's real important to me that I love about uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was written by Bill. And uh, he, of course, always says it better than any of us can ever say it. And uh, it's in the AA way of life, and it's uh, called In All Our Affairs, and it says pretty much how I feel about Alcoholics Anonymous. The chief purpose of AA is sobriety. We all realize that without sobriety we have nothing. However, it is possible to expand this simple aim into a great deal of nonsense so far as the individual member is concerned. Sometimes we hear him say in effect, sobriety is my sole responsibility. After all, I'm a pretty fine chap except for my drinking. Give me sobriety and I've got it made. As long as our friend clings to this comfortable alibi, he will make so little progress with his real-life problems and responsibilities that he stands in a fair way to get drunk again. This is why AA's 12th step urges that we practice these principles in all our affairs. We are not living just to be sober. We are living to serve, to learn, and to love. I love each of you. Thank you so much.